0: Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Seed. Uh, We're going to talk about Beauty and the Beast, which I'm so excited about. And before we do that, after this introduction, we're going to make an announcement about the fate of the show. So please check that out, folks. It's sticking around, but a thing will be different. But I want to I want to talk to you about Beauty and the Beast and talk to you about our, our, our wonderful guest, Dana Schwartz. You just listened to this episode again. What, how did it strike you?
1: I feel like this is in some ways difficult to identify as a Disney adult. And I feel like this episode is a safe space for Disney adults. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why do you think that is? Why do you think it was a, it was a fine place to do that? And, and what do you find difficult about that identity?
1: Well, I feel like especially in the past year, there's been a lot of drama, and I kind of mentioned this briefly in the episode, with like Disney running theme parks or closing theme parks or sort of mitigating crowds at theme parks, etc. during a pandemic, and the various choices that Disney has made and the choices that people who are trying very hard to get back into Disney parks have made. And I feel like the idea of like being an adult who loves Disney. Disney or who wants to go to a Disney park gets very bound up in the idea that you are clinging to childhood or to immaturity in a way that's fundamentally (laughs) embarrassing and kind of unsophisticated. And I would say it is unsophisticated and that sophistication is overrated, but I don't think it's embarrassing or has to be. Mike, my view of it is that I was in denial about this for a long time, like how deeply my software had been written by Disney from the the time that I was a very young child. And Hmm. I feel like in the past few years, I have really embraced the fact that I know all these songs. I love all these songs. Like it makes me happy to sing these songs and better yet to sing them with somebody. Hmm. Some of the most kind of transcendently lovely moments of friendship that I've had over the years have been in a moment where I'm like, Not necessarily, but often with another woman who's like about my age and we start singing a song together and we get that, that we're like looking at each other and it's like, oh my God, I know all the words. Do you know all the words? Let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. (laughs) Mm. And like, you just go to a place when that happens.
0: It was so lovely to be present and have that happen. It was like lovely to watch that happen because I watched Mm -hmm. it happen between you and another another person while we're all in different places. It was a a very special thing to see occur.
1: I think Dana and I really exercised remarkable restraint and not singing through Hmm. this entire episode. (laughs)
0: Who is Dana and and why why did you think to reach out to her for this for this episode?
1: So Dana Schwartz is someone who listeners of You're Wrong About will know because she is the royal correspondent that we have on the show over there. So she has come on in the past to talk about Marie Antoinette and Anastasia, which also kind of took us into the cartoon movie nineties kid realm of things. And she also is the host of Noble Blood, which is a wonderful podcast that I listen to whenever I want to hear someone tell me about history in a way that just feels respectful and also very human. Like, I feel like I'm like, this is Dana, who is a person whose personality I enjoy, like telling me stories with kind of the full gravity of a historian um, in podcast format, which I really appreciate. And so we decided to make her talk about something where her expertise in history and aristocracy was completely irrelevant in a sense because we're like, it's Disney, who cares, forget it. It's whatever time, it's whatever place. I mean, it is France, but it's whatever time, don't worry about it. She is a fellow Disney kid and Disney adult. Really the main thing, the reason I asked her to do this episode And the reason that we were talking before about maybe doing The Little Mermaid, which I feel like we might come back to later, is that she loves Howard Ashman very, very much. And that Mm. to me is kind of the keystone of my adult love of Beauty and the Beast, is that the lyrics to these songs were written by Howard Ashman, who is a wonderful lyricist um, and just a great light in I would say broadly just the storytelling community who uh, we lost much too soon. And we got a lot more into that in the episode, but I, more than anything, I was like, we just have to get Dana on so we can talk about Howard Ashman together. But just to have her on as a
0: fan was so nice. Yeah. I love when we get analytical and I love when we get feelingsy and we did maybe a little bit here, but I also just love when we have people on who, who love a thing Mm -hmm. Do you have anything before we go into our special, special announcement about Mm -hmm. uh, where the show is heading?
1: We've always been kind of a movie podcast and kind of had a foot in something else. And I feel like something that we do that I really enjoy is to look at movies or just media generally, especially that we grew up with and to not to ignore, but to try and bring in a bigger conversation than like. You know, is this bad, or is this okay? Like, is this racist or like, is this sexist? And it's like, and the answer most of the time is like, yeah, it is because it was made by the movie industry in you know, the 80s or the 90s. that's when most of the properties we talk about were made. And it's like, what are the odds that it wouldn't be, honestly? Like we're not mm-hmm. talking about something that actually is trying in a in a radical way because those movies rarely got distributed. Or if they, if they were trying, then like you buy a way to try or to be radical by surrendering something else. I feel like a lot of the time, the question that we try to ask is like, why do I love this thing that I love? Like, what is it doing for me? What is it offering me? What did it offer me when I was a child? Like, regardless of the problems that it has or the decisions in it that I find regrettable or the fact that we're now trying to do more and do better and we're creating this new crop of movies. Like, why is this thing that we had so important to me?
0: Yeah, excellent. So, Sarah, here is our big announcement. This is the last Why Are Dads?
1: (gasps) Oh, no. Daddy's leaving. You said dads don't leave. (laughs)
0: I would never, I would never make that promise.
1: (laughs) This is, this is the last Wire Dads because we're changing our name. I'm really excited about this. When did you decide we needed a new name? Because you mentioned it at about the moment that I had started to feel that it was the case as well.
0: (laughs) I I mentioned it to you like a week ago. (laughs) (laughs) But it's been on my mind largely because I handle the social and it's been on my mind for a long time. One in that we've had a number of conversations with folks who listen about how we can convey what the show is about. And people hear us humorously and clumsily trying to get to the bottom of what the show is about at the beginning of the show. Mm -hmm. But I hear from people all the time, all the time, not like here and there. And it got stuck in my head. I hear from people all the time who say, it took me forever to listen to the show because I have such intense issues with my dad, or I thought that it was specifically for dads, or Mm. I loved the idea of the show, but I still can't even bring myself there because of my specific dad issues. And I was like,
1: or alternatively, I see people being like, I would listen, but it seems like you all get together and talk about how your dad's traumatized you. And I have a nice dad. And so I feel like, you know, nothing for me here. And those people are rare, but they also say that.
0: (laughs) Yes, totally. And and so it became evident over time that I think there were a lot of people we would like at the table because it sounds mm. like they like what they think that we're doing that don't feel welcome at the table. And I don't love mm. that. And, and uh I, you know, there are other things that we can and should do. And so, you know what, I'd love to know about why it resonated with you that it was time for a change.
1: I mean, it feels as if why our dads are like the dad's theme is like the pot that this little plant came in or that we initially planted it in. Like this is where we planted our starts and they're ready to be transplanted to the garden because they've started to send out roots and do all kinds of weird stuff. And it's like, oh, I thought I was planting a pepper, but I was planting a tomato. And now we have all these tomatoes. (laughs) And, like, we're not going to, like, not enjoy these tomatoes, right? Like, I feel like we had the initial idea for this show. It was about movies about the apocalypse loosely described and, like, friendship in the apocalypse. And then we transitioned to dads because you suggested it. And I was like, yes, that's brilliant. Because, like, dads and movies are, like, very broad themes that, like, most people have ideas about or have feelings about and mm. that's true but also I feel like we've we started off that way and then we found so much else that we enjoyed doing and liked having people come by to do it feels like we have grown out of this holder in a really nice way and it feels like applying a new name to what we're doing is like growing another ring around a tree
0: oh I love that I think to this point the conceit of getting together and talking about dads and movies has been you know, a tricky way of saying that we're going to talk about masculinity and we're going to talk about feelings. And so we've settled into and we're, you know, we're dancing around what this name is. We'll we'll get there. Mm
1: -hmm. You're gonna love it. Don't worry. You're gonna love it. I really like
0: the idea of this tag, you know, a feelings podcast about movies, because I think that that's Mm -hmm. kind of the unique thing that we do, which is like, you know, there are, as you pointed out, when we're trying to come up with names and looking at all of the podcasts that exist. There are are maybe as many movie podcasts as there are podcasts. Like every podcast is a movie podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think the thing that we do that is interesting that I like and that people seem to gravitate towards is that rather than look at movies through an analytical lens, we look at movies through a feelings lens and Mm. all of our conversations, regardless of what they're talking about, we're trying to get to the bottom of feelings. And uh, I want to keep doing that. I like doing that. And I want to do that in a broader way with more people at the table.
1: Yeah. Movies to me and, and TV also, but this is a movie show because you can ask someone to prep by watching two hours of something in a way you can't by asking them to catch up on 40 hours of something, for example. I think movies are so valuable to us partly because they allow us to have a common experience of something in a way that technologically actually is pretty amazing. Like I feel like we take movies for granted because they are such a basic part of human entertainment and are such a big industry. But like, when you think about it, it is absolutely bizarre. And I, if you had to explain this to a space alien or to someone from the past, I guess someone from the past would probably do a better job understanding you. But what you have to convey is that like, we have a massive industry that is about making It looked like things happened that never happened and never could happen (laughs) and getting people to, you know, once upon a time and and sometime in the not so distant future, going into a dark room to sit together and to share the same dream while they are awake and to treat that as like this mundane thing that you do. It's like, oh, I got to take the car in. I mean, cars are also a trip. I guess everything in modern life is a trip, really. But they're like, I got to feed the dog and I got to take the car to the shop. And then I got to go dream a shared dream with a bunch of strangers Mm -hmm. while eating popped (laughs) corn, And like, that's amazing. And I think that movies give us a way to to talk about our feelings and to share vulnerabilities. Because like, we have experienced the same thing. Like, we have both experienced Titanic. Not the ship but the movie and like, that's quite an experience.
0: Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I think it, in a way, I mean, I don't mean to poo poo anything that any other people do, but in a way to then have our most common medium of talking about the movie to be, Usually, to talk about how the movie was made mm-hmm. <laughs> seems so specifically hilarious because it's skirting around the thing where it's like we all shared this feeling together. We should talk about that probably. And I like that I get to do that with you and I love that we get to do it with other people and everyone from folks who are recognized in this industry to people in the fisheries. that's such a cool <laughs> such a cool privilege.
1: <laughs> So, Sarah. Yes. What is the new show called? The new show is called You Are Good. <laughs> Where has someone heard that before? Jaws. No, that's not right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is from Young Frankenstein. And we, long ago, last summer or something, had a shirt where our artist friend, Liz Clemo did an illustration of Dr. Frankenstein and his monster, Dr. Frankenstein, I'm sorry, and his monster in doggy form. Mm -hmm. And it's a dog comforting another dog saying, you are good. And that's what happens in the movie. They're not dogs. But basically, we talked in that episode about how The moment in Young Frankenstein, when it turns from just a horror pastiche into actively a different story and turns from horror to comedy and to something where everyone's going to get a happy ending and end up with the person they're supposed to be with, is when Dr. Frankenstein, I guess he's Frankenstein, He, he accepts his name, whatever. When Gene Wilder accepts his monster and says you are good to him and the monster responds with (laughs) we went through so many titles like this was extremely difficult to try and come up with a new title actually because like the second you get one that is like a decent pun like obviously it's been taken because there's the land rush on movie podcast titles like happened many (laughs) years ago and we missed it
0: There's a segment from our episode about uh, Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein where you talk about why this is important. And maybe we can put a clip of that right here. Where do we leave Frankenstein in this movie?
1: To me, the the biggest turning point, like the turning point within the turning point scene is when the monster is finally face to face with his creator and Gene Wilder is talking to him and says, you are good i've already described this scene as we've been recording today but it's just so important to me and, the, and i and it's just amazing to me that i saw this movie so many times and i don't remember the scene like i don't remember ever thinking about or finding it important i watched this as you know as a kid who loved comedy and i love that like this movie was totally delightful to me and made me happier to live in this stupid mean world even when that moment wasn't important to me and now it is, and it just—I can see themes in it that weren't there before. But it—it it, it works for all ages. So he says, "You are good," and the monster just like has this like anguished cry, right? He's just like, Wah! And that's the moment where like you just need someone to be like, "You are good." I love that this movie is about the power of someone like speaking lovingly of you to your face, basically.
0: That was a great clip from that episode.
1: (laughs) That was a wonderful clip that I just heard and not just in my head, imagining what it might be. I know what just happened.
0: But you said when we were talking about this, you said that this this episode is around when you feel that the show kind of clicked.
1: Yeah, for me it did. And I feel like, I guess actually what was special to me about that episode partly was that by putting these movies in conversation and watching them In order to do an episode about them like that was when i realized in my reading why that scene is so important because if you embrace your monster rather than fleeing from him for your entire life then like he becomes this very cute manageable presence as opposed to someone who's just going to chase you to the arctic until you die or you know die by heights and fire and villagers as happened in the James Whale film. So it was special to me to prepare for talking about these movies and in the process realize that, like, this was something that Mel Brooks movies kind of have always held for me and why they're special to me and why when I was a kid, especially, like, around middle school era, which I think is, like, the time when a lot of kids discover Mel Brooks because, like, that is it's an ageless humor, but it like really hits a sweet spot when you're kind of middle school aged. But also because like life when you're a preteen can be pretty rough. And Mel Brooks movies create a universe where things work out for people and people actually do right. And like good does triumph. And they are funny because they are kind. Like, I think that's an underrated quality. And That was, I guess, me being the first experiment where we realized or where I realized like, oh, this show is about talking about feelings through talking about movies. And, you know, this is a show about feelings and the movies that help us to talk about them or to have them.
0: So one thing I want to do is assure to a lot of people who, when we said we were going to be changing our name, they're like, because everyone feels about change the same way I do. And you do, I think is I
1: don't like
0: it initially.
1: Some people like it, but they're interesting. I don't, I don't know where they're coming from.
0: So I think a lot of people are like, are you going to talk about the same sort of stuff? And like, yes, I think we are going to talk about the same sort of stuff. Are we going to fixate on dads? Probably not.
1: Oh, I'll still fixate on some dads. Don't worry. Absolutely.
0: Well, I think, and I think dads will naturally. I mean, we have a lot of episodes already recorded, so dads are going to come up in those shows. But I think dads are naturally going to sh- show up because what I think we do on this show is use movies to unpack baggage and to talk with each other about that baggage and to have it be cathartic and have it be fun and have it ideally be funny a lot of the time with people that we talk with and, you know, have mm-hmm. it be real and honest. And one thing a lot of people say jokingly, you know, is you've been doing the show Wire Dads for so much time. I'm like, have you come up with an answer yet? And I think our answer is you are good. Oh, (laughs) what I mean by that is like we've gotten to the point where at least in this example that you just described is like a lot of the baggage comes from the fact that we just want the people that we love and who are our authorities in one way or another to acknowledge the fact that we are good in a non-complicated way. Yeah, And what we're doing is reminding people in this title, in this place where we unpack baggage, in this place where we talk about feelings, in the place where we, as we do in this episode about Beauty and the Beast, just unleash an hour of giddy enthusiasm about something.
1: That also ends in crying. It's like a child's birthday party that way.
0: Exactly. That's exactly like that is the arc of an episode. And we've been trying to get to the bottom of Wire Dads. While we can't answer that, we can say a place where a lot of our hurt and frustration and weirdness comes from is just wanting someone else to acknowledge so we can also do it too, that we are good. And that's what we're doing, dear listener. You are good. Come along with us
1: while we keep
0: moving in this direction.
1: And let's put on the Ritz. <laughs> hey, I just want
0: to make a couple of quick announcements before we begin. They are of the housekeeping nature. First, thank you so much to our supporters on patreon.com patreon.com slash wiredads your support goes a long way to making this show possible it pays our staff which is really fantastic Uh, it's nice that people can make a living doing this sort of thing it pays the artists who we work with Uh, it pays musicians uh, whose music appears in the show the interstitial music it pays carolyn for her time making music we appreciate it it means a whole lot Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for helping us make this thing possible. We have uh, somewhat regular bonus content, conversations, a little, I'm not going to say lighter, but a little lighter in format than the typical show, and that happens about twice a month. So you can find that at patreon.com slash wiredads. Thank you, thank you, thank you if you're already supporting, and thank you if you're considering right now doing the same thing. We appreciate you. And thank you to Knack Factory, a sponsor of ours that is a commercial and creative content video production company based in Portland, Maine, but it does work throughout these here United States. If you're looking to get your message out into the world and video is a part of that, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. They can help you out. So we are going to change our name on social probably by the weekend and ideally in the various podcast apps, although some of them are slower to respond than others. So if you keep seeing Wire Dads for a little while on your podcast player, your podcaster or whatever they are called, just bear with us. Eventually the name will show up. We're going to use the same art for a little while, but with a new name on it. And then we're going to transition into something else when the time feels right. So just keep an eye on all that. But as of right now, we are Why Our Dads on Instagram and on Twitter. And there will be some version of You Are Good very soon. (laughs) Our website's going to change. It's going to be a sloppy transition. When you change a title midstream, it's always a little messy. So bear with us. Our Why Our Dads t-shirt and hoodie They have been selling wildly since we announced online that we were going to be changing our name at some point soon. We hadn't even announced the name yet. This is the the announcement of the name. And I think we've sold more of these shirts than we have ever sold before. (laughs) You can find them. They're available for pre-order through May uh, 28th. And then they won't be available anymore. You won't be able to get the Wire Dead shirts, uh, the Wire Dead Cherub shirts anymore. They just will not around so I don't know people maybe think that these are uh, some sort of collector's item or they want to remember the show as it was people have been buying them we appreciate it and soon there will be you are good shirts I should say so find them in the link to the show notes if you get there on time every week we feature a spotify playlist that you can find uh, again in the show notes it will feature music that we pick that is uh inspired by the conversation we had not always like exclusively just by the title but by the title of the movie and by the conversation and by the guest and all that so check that out uh, we've been having a lot of fun with those I should know we didn't say, talk about this in the introduction, but Dana, you know, who's obviously the host of Noble Blood, who's just all around wonderful, is our guest for this episode. She has a book coming out called Anatomy, a Love Story. It's coming February 22nd, 2022. You can pre order on Dana's website. Like, get this book. Like, Dana's great. We're so glad that she's doing all the things that she's doing. You should absolutely pick this book up. Yeah, I want you to know that Dana's got all sorts of things going on, and I want you to support all of these lovely people who are a part of this show. All right, that's so many things to put in your ears before we go. Let's go talk about Beauty and the Beast with the fabulous Dana Schwartz. B A guest be our guest put our service to the test tie your napkin round your neck sherry and we
1: provide the...
0: this is the day your dreams come true
1: what do you know about my dreams gaston plenty Big
2: like Gaston, okay, like big like Gaston!
0: No one's got us well cleft in his gym like Gaston! As a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. Why let you do this? If you're not with us, you're against us. We
2: don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us and this monster is mysterious at least.
0: Did you honestly think she'd want you when she had someone like me? I let her go.
1: Uh, Splint. You What? I had to. Yes, but 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 why? Because I love her.
0: (sighs) Hello, Sarah Marshall.
1: Hello, Alex Steed.
0: I don't know why that has been my adopted tone for that hello. Like, I just realized that it's, like, in my muscle memory at this point. But that's just how I say hello to you at the beginning of the show.
1: Is that how you say hello generally, or is it for this show? No. Okay.
0: <laughs> it's
1: just it's just
0: solidified here.
1: I don't know if it has, it's a meaningful tone. It's just like, hello. It's like, welcome to my web rant
2: feel like all podcasters and like youtubers always have to take on like their podcast youtube tone yeah it's a very specific thing hello hello <laughs>
0: totally and it just like falls into place somehow and then it's yeah, what it is then it's just that from now on
1: and then it's just what you say yeah hey guys today we're going to be talking about beauty and the beast hey fam <laughs> so happy to be here <laughs> <laughs> Who is this mystery voice? This rebel without a cause is Dana Schwartz. <laughs> I don't play by the rules. Yay. Hi, Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Yes. So we're talking about Beauty and the Beast and D- Dana is here. Was this by design,
1: Sarah? Well, I knew that I wanted to invite Dana for some kind of Disney movie. And Dana, I think he would propose The Little Mermaid. And that seemed like a good idea as well. But then we talked about Pretty Woman and I was like, wait a minute. Pretty Woman feels very similar
2: specifically to the Disney Beauty and the Beast. So we should talk about that. Wildly. And it's such, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, it's such a weird coincidence. I'm in a writer's room now for the Beauty and the Beast prequel on Disney+. Plus. <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> so this is all very thematically in place.
1: Okay. It's funny because I was watching
2: it and I was like, you know who I want to see a spinoff
1: about? The... <laughs> terrifying unethical asylum keeper what's his story <laughs> what's his deal is that what the prequel's about <laughs> i mean maybe about his lost love
2: yeah what's the deal with that asylum keeper
1: i, I like this town too
2: <laughs> he loves being evil
1: their industries are hat shop charcuterie eggs baguettes bookstore that doesn't sell books and an asylum you can see that the asylum is the real money maker
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah, Sarah, can you, uh, for the uninitiated, tell us what Beauty and the Beast is about, and then let's get into it.
1: Beauty and the Beast, in case you have grown up outside of an oral folktale tradition of any kind, because I feel like this story exists in practically every culture, is about a young woman who, because of her father's idiocy or bad choices in some way or another, usually, and in this case, because... He got lost and went to the Beast's house, got too close to the magic rose, or did he? Did that happen? Or did <laughs> I make that up? No, that didn't happen.
2: He's just mad that he he ate there, his food and his feast. He was just there. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I've seen this movie more
1: times than I can count, but I'm still like, what happens in it? Like, I'm in it for the sing-alongs, I gotta say. Anyway, a young woman, because of her father's Idiocy or bad planning ends up having to marry the beast who he has wronged by entering his castle in order to secure his bail, basically. Like she's taking his place on the perhaps chopping block. And then he falls in love with her and she falls in love with him back, and it turns out he was only a beast because he was enchanted and. Once she loves him, he turns back into a man, which is considered better for some reason. And then they live happily ever after.
2: Even though I think we all can objectively decide he's better looking as a beast. I don't think anyone preferred him as a
1: guy.
0: Yeah, yeah what happened? I've never seen that man before. <laughs> As I said, as I said to Dana earlier, and, and to say like I've I've only just came into this movie a year ago, and I had since blocked it yeah. out. What he looks like as a normo, and he looks horrendous.
2: He looks so bland. It's funny because I was
1: watching it and I was like, I can't say what a good-looking animated man looks like in this world, <laughs> and it's also confusing because like. They did not kill themselves on the character design, I have to say. Like, all these people are basically lines. So, like, does the transformed Beast Prince have too many lines on his face and he looks weird next to everyone else or what? I feel like they
2: spent all of their character design on the Beast, which is a good character design where it's like he's not too scary, but he's still kind of, like, intimidating. Where everyone else just looks like flat nonsense. And then he's he's forgettable white bread.
0: That's exactly how I feel. It's like they had this beautiful design for the beast mm-hmm. and then at one point they're like, "Oh my god, we have this scene where he's not the beast anymore." Has anyone thought about that? And they're like, "No, let's just make him a guy."
2: They're like, "This is Disney. We don't plan ahead." Like if you told me that they repurposed like the bread seller from the town <laughs>
1: No, they guess they just drew over Friar Tuck's face from Robin Hood. <laughs> the thing about Beauty and the Beast that doesn't get described in the summary, the thing about this Beauty and the Beast is that the Beast is like the most endearingly and expressively drawn character by like three hundred percent, I think. Like Belle communicates with her voice and that's why Paige O'Hara is so wonderful in this role. Like I to me, Paige O'Hara's voice is like it goes so high, it goes so low, like it it to me it's like the epitome of Disney princess. Mm. And she doesn't need an expressive face.
2: And then the Beast is just like such a beautifully designed character. I feel like, that. yeah, I agree. Belle's face is very generic. And it's also like the exact same face as those three, I think, literally called the bimbets. The three blonde girls who are in love with Gaston. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And then the only other
1: major element that I think does tend to show up in a lot of versions of it, is that he has enchanted servants who are all objects now, and they help her. And one of them is Jerry Orbach, the end. They're the fun ones.
0: (laughs) They seem so cool about being entrapped in this situation. They seem not bitter at all, which I found to be very nice. Well,
1: this is the kind of story you can't bring an adult brain to, because at the end of it, they also become human (laughs) again. And I was like, isn't it kind of a bummer that Chip, who has lived for, well, I guess only for like 10 years or something, as frozen in childhood now he's everyone's going to start to age naturally again and start inching towards death. And I was like, God, Sarah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I certainly thought about that same thing. (laughs) Dana, what's your history with this movie?
2: Um, pretty close to obsession. I was very much like a Disney animation kid. Like I was, Mm. you know, born in 1993, but I have older siblings and a younger sister. So like, Definitely our Disney watching phase extended in both directions. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I was like the perfect age for the Disney renaissance. You know, I was like Mm -hmm. elementary school student. So like most of my childhood was spent and also like Disney movies, when you have four siblings, like there's very few movies that everyone will agree on. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like Disney movies were like the thing that were always on in my childhood home at some point or another. Did you also watch a lot of DCOMs? That would come a little later. I was a little young for DCOMs.
0: What's a DCOM?
2: A DCOM, Alex. A Disney Channel original movie. Of course.
1: Of course. Such as The Luck of the Irish or that Magic House one, Robot House. Oh,
2: Smart House. Smart
1: House. Smart House was terrifying and very prescient.
2: Oof. So, yeah, so I have... uh, listen to a scene, a lot of Disney movies. I'm also like very much like a musical theater person. And so I feel like that also sort of feeds into like a larger obsession with Howard Ashman, who Sarah and I have talked a lot about, who, Mm -hmm. you know, produced and wrote the, the songs in Beauty and the Beast. And so... And and now, of course, I'm I'm writing on that prequel, so I would say an an intimate knowledge of Beauty and the Beast.
0: Sarah, what did you tell me to imagine while I was listening to the songs regarding Howard Ashman?
1: (laughs) I said, imagine these lyrics being written by a gay boy from Baltimore. I love that. Because that's what Howard Ashman once was. And when I listen to the opening song, which is called Belle, it makes me think about Good Morning Baltimore from Hairspray. Yes. (laughs) And just how Howard Ashman grew up in Baltimore in the 60s. And, like, I just feel like that song feels connected to the experience of being a gay teenage boy in Baltimore in the 60s. It's a pity and a sin. He doesn't quite fit in. Yeah.
0: I love it. So where do we begin?
1: Alex, okay. As the person who is coming to this cold, I'm so curious because, again, this is a movie that is just part of my earliest memory. This is the first movie I saw in theaters when I was three and a half. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this movie?
0: <laughs> that also just made me think about the fact that my, I think my first movie that I saw in the theater was Snow White,
1: mm. that, which was obviously
0: re-released. I didn't see it <laughs> in its original run. No, you're actually
1: <laughs> 85. You're the same age as your dad.
2: <laughs> for a second, I was like, wow. And then, for, then I, I realized. You're like, wow.
1: <laughs> the early 80s really were different. Hitler was building power in Europe and...
0: I guess, like, one of the things that comes up immediately is the thing that you texted me, which is this trope that exists within Disney, where like, an absent-minded inventor type gets the family in trouble, and yeah. like, that's just the thing that happens. We already talked about Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, yeah. and so that stuck out to me.
1: So we need three movies for a fake trend, but I'm sure someone else can think of a third one. Well, Flubber, right? Flubber, a, Flubber. does he yes, have a daughter? Disney? Inspector Gadget, also a parentified daughter of a oh. genius buffoon type. Yes. Yeah.
0: This is a big thing. This happened a lot.
1: The goal is to have a dad- Dad who's so smart that he
2: doesn't notice that you're having
1: adventures yes
2: yeah <laughs> that he's smart so he like is interesting but yeah absent-minded in a lovable way
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: that's like a, and then just this choice that this poor woman has <laughs> that is set up by a good deal of horrendous circumstances <laughs> being her choice of loves and then her being captured
1: and philippe being a really smart horse Oh, Philippe. Philippe nails it. He's the
2: MVP of this movie.
1: Right? I was kind of thinking that. Philippe is like the R2 D2 of this movie. He makes it all yes. possible.
0: Yes! <laughs> Yeah, so those are the things that struck me immediately. I just felt, I feel like if I saw this as a kid, I would have been worried about a whole different set of things than the things that I was worried about as a child, like mm. like involuntary institutionalization or having to be, or having to fall on the sword for my absent-minded father, mm. which I did have to do, but I would have thought about it some mm. more. The songs are wonderful. Mm-hmm. This is such a fun movie to work through because the songs are actually delightful. Yeah, that's not a very heady series of statements about this, but that's where I was at.
1: I don't think we need to be that heady. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to me, the point also is the music. Like, I watch it now. I grew up with this movie as a kid, and I'm like, and I know that, like, people love to talk about the story, and they're like, is it bad for kids to watch this, or is it Stockholm Syndrome or whatever? And I'm just like, you know, if they don't get it from here, they're going to get it from elsewhere, this (laughs) idea that you save a man by loving him. Like, if I hadn't (laughs) loved this movie, I would have gotten it from seven-eighths of the cultural tax I received. And also, you don't watch it for the story. You watch it for the music, and the music is incredible.
2: I do think it's a largely positive message. Like, Gaston is a a figure of toxic masculinity before that was a thing we talked about. And, like, Mm. I'll be the one. I know everyone's like, oh, it's Stockholm Syndrome. And absolutely, in, like, the original thing it is. I think this movie does make an effort to make it an even-handed... Like, she gives as good as she gets. Mm -hmm. Even though, obviously, Mm. the circumstances are that she is a captive in this place, and I'm not glossing over that, but I do think character-wise, they do a lot to make it feel like it is a real love story that's happening between the two of them. Right. The Beast is a very half-hearted jailer, for
1: one thing. Like, you get out one time, and he's (laughs) like, ugh, whatever.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like, he's a jailer who barely gives a shit... And then, like, most of the time, you're just, like, having feasts with his servants.
0: (laughs) But I totally agree with her. It's like, yes, these circumstances are absolutely not ideal, and I'm not encouraging people falling in love through becoming captive. But, like, all of our circumstances are generally not ideal, and then we work within those circumstances. Like, that's how shit works. Right.
1: And also, Disney was like, let's adapt fairy tales. And it's like, well, these are
2: the choices. (laughs) 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 and like for all those things it's like it was a female screenwriter and a Hmm. gay man writing the songs it's like I think it's as much like a critique of masculinity Mm -hmm. in an interesting way maybe that's like maybe I've gone like through the looking glass where I'm like so close to the text I'm past it but I do think you can read it as a critique of masculinity that's really interesting I mean, I think that's where it
1: becomes interesting and really comes alive.
0: How does it function as a critique of masculinity?
2: I think someone like Gaston in most other movies is the hero, you know, like the most yeah. handsome man in town who's also the strongest, who everyone loves. Like, it's very rare, I think, to have a story for children where the villain is also the most popular guy in town. Mm. And he has hero face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like that's sort of an interesting dynamic. She falls in love with the Beast, not because he's like tough or strong, but because of his like tenderness and like his patience and like learning to read with her and like giving her the library and like through again through in this prism of the movie. Like those aren't like stereotypically masculine traits necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's He's like tenderness that comes through that I think the movie is trying to reward.
1: I mean, as a Mm -hmm. kid, I also really loved all iterations of the Beauty and the Beast story. And I would seek those out, I think, and especially about fourth and fifth grade. You know, there and there were a lot of versions of them that were also very popular for girls like Robin McKinley, I think, wrote a couple of Beauty and the Beast books Mm. that I loved. Yeah, it's just I mean, to me also, one of the ideas I took from that (laughs) story generally was like you know men are scary and maybe it's best to get to know one when he doesn't look like a man he looks like an animal or something or just like who's outside of society and you just go to a big castle together and you just talk for a really long time yeah and he gives you nice clothes (laughs) and you get a you get a giant magical library yeah that part's not bad either i also like the movie has a very clear message of like Guys who try and interrupt your reading time or put their feet on your books are bad news, and guys who support your reading are probably going to care about you genuinely. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: This shares that in common with Rainman, right? Mm. Tom Cruise touches all of Raymond's books, and that we right. know that he's uh, by default an asshole. And
1: Tom Cruise is totally—he has major Gaston face, doesn't he? he sure in a wrestling does. match, nobody bites like Tom Cruise. No. <laughs> well,
0: it's funny because I am temporarily now living back in the town that I grew up in. And so I live in small town, Maine, and I saw a lot of parallels with like, I know who our town Gaston is. <laughs> and so I can like I kind of see there's some dimensions that I'm able to see here and I'm able to to be like, I know who, I kind of know who all of these people mm. are. And I know this dynamic a little bit. And it was really interesting to see it through that lens of this guy being someone that like every I love, love what you said Dana it's like an interesting choice yeah. to make the person who everybody likes in town be the villain like mm-hmm. that's a that's a wild thing that does not that I, I don't see often happen now
1: and to be like yeah the villagers are stupid and they're easily
2: led into a hateful murderous mob
0: like in Frankenstein
2: most of the other movies like the villain is like a queer coded outcast right mm. <laughs> you know like a scar or- and Ursula where it's like it's kind of interesting to have the villain be transparently jealous and selfish and still like I guess in like internet speak like the Chad yeah
0: yeah he's a super straight
1: yeah and they tried to walk that back in the live-action remake which I thought I didn't understand what the purpose of that was, where they were like, LeFou's throwing money at people to get them to sing about Gaston. They don't really like him. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, it's a musical. These fuckers don't know they're singing. And (laughs) B, like, why?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, of course people like Gaston. He's a handsome, big hunter. For all the reasons that they're singing. (laughs) And for all the reasons that they don't like Belle. Yeah. The town doesn't like Belle because she's different and, like, threatens their basic gender norms and they Mm. like Gaston because he's handsome and doesn't. And she's the daughter of crazy old Maurice and she doesn't talk to them. Oh, my favorite lyric in all of Beauty and the Beast is no one, something like Gaston takes cheap shots like Gaston. No one persecutes harmless crackpots like Gaston.
0: Yeah, that was wild.
2: This, I mean, there are some
1: <laughs> lyrics in this movie that are just are so overt and just, I mean, another one that I didn't really notice until a couple of years ago probably was in the mob song. where. What, how does it go down? It's like, we don't like what we don't understand. In fact, it scares us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this monster is mysterious, at least. Right. Isn't that great? Yeah,
2: that is exactly <laughs> it.
0: That's fantastic. We
2: don't like what we don't understand. They're just. Yep, yeah, that's us. Just saying it. <laughs> Some of the couplets in Gaston, I think, are some of the best lyrics in Disney animation. Such as. Mm-hmm. As a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. Yes. <laughs> I use handlers in all of my decorating. And
1: that little kick he does.
2: <laughs> he's such a fun villain because he's so, like, transparent. He literally says, he's like, Bella's the most beautiful, that makes her the best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I also kind of think is, like, a fun indictment of a lot of, like, other Disney movies where, like, the girl is just the best because she's the prettiest. Right. Right. You're right. Like Snow White. I also like how Gaston is apparently deciding this based on his own metric
1: because no one else seems to think so. I mean, they say she's a beauty, but it's not like she has any social capital. Right.
2: Exactly. He thinks he has enough social capital for both of them and he can, she's, she's all that. Yeah.
1: I love when we first meet him.
0: And he says, I've got my sights set on that one. And he aims the gun at her. Do you notice that? And I was like, all right, well, okay, this is heavy handed for his straight insanity.
1: I think this relates really well to our conversation about Pretty in Pink, where it's like, well, we're in a universe where all the men are profoundly lacking.
2: And so you just have to do what you can with that.
0: You just have to settle for Blaine.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Gaston, I think that's also it. Like, he's a hunter and he chose his prey, and his prey mm. is Baal, and so he's just not going to give up. Yeah. Even if he has to bribe a, the scariest asylum keeper in the entire world. <laughs>
1: Which, is it called Asylum for Loons on the side of the wagon? <laughs> that was a nice time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so the choice, I mean, the choice is to be hunted quasi-literally by this guy or to fall in love with someone in the, what is it? What is his estate? Is it a castle?
1: He's in a castle that's just it's like, a just a stone's throw away from town, but no one's seen it because they're all fucking idiots.
2: I think, I think in in universe, there's probably an enchantment on it. Makes sense. Yeah, well, it
0: enchants at the end, which I found very nice.
2: Maybe it gets shaky at the end. It's like a flat screen. It's like the world in Wonder Woman where, like, you have to literally be there to see it.
1: Yes, yes, Mm. yes.
2: You guys see Wonder Woman, you have to, like, Mm -hmm. literally be on that path. And then you're like, oh, here it is. You have to crash
1: into it. Yeah, like Steve or Maurice. Right. (laughs) Men accidentally find magical lands because they just go crashing around. Yeah. In these stories.
0: <laughs> What's the dad situation in this movie, Sarah?
2: Oh, he's an old dad.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he for sure is.
2: He is an old dad. Have we talked about the Disney old dad phenomenon yet?
0: No, let's let's do it.
2: Yeah, you're right.
1: And he's built a lot like um, Jasmine's dad. He's an old round dad.
2: <laughs> okay, this dad is old. Jasmine's dad is old. The dad in Little Mermaid is a white hair, white beard mm-hmm. old dad. And the dad in... Um, Uh, Mulan is, like, so old, he's, like, collapsing. Right. Mm. He can't fight for his country. This is, like, the 1600s. Why do all these weary... How do all these weary men have children in their 50s? (laughs) I have an idea.
1: I bet there are a lot of Disney bigwigs who had late-life babies and are just like, (laughs) I feel represented by this. Do it. Right.
2: Is it because, like, if you have a teenage daughter, you should be, like, 40, probably, like, in-universe, Right. Yeah. Where it's like they don't kind of want you to confuse the dad for a hunk. Right. And if the characters yeah. are kind of flatly
1: drawn, then that would be too easy because if they're the same age. Yeah. Like how old is is human beast? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God. How old is human beast?
1: Yeah. I think he's like 21. Right. Because he's been in the encampment for. He doesn't look 21. I don't know. He's he's some kind of flat face. Disney guy age.
2: If you told me he was 40, I'd be like, sure.
1: Yeah, he's between 20 and 40, which is why the dads have to be 60. (laughs) (laughs) See, there's
0: no mistaking.
1: And Triton's like 500 years old, probably. But Ariel's 16.
0: Yeah, I mean, Triton by canon is, like, I think thousands of years old.
1: According <laughs> to, like, mythology or, or, like, yeah. According
0: to according to mythology, like, if, that, if the Little Mermaid takes place in, what, like, the 1800s or the 1700s, yeah, yeah Triton's several thousand so years old. So
1: is he old. an actual god of the sea? Oh, yeah. Is he Jupiter? Yeah, he's Poseidon, right?
0: Yes. He's someone's son. Think he's Poseidon's son?
1: Oh, okay. He's so he's a mythological guy who just wandered over into Disney, and they're like, "This is mythology a little bit," and it's also
0: we don't have to pay any money for this. <laughs> we don't have to pay money for the rights. It's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's choose the right. Guy. I love that. I love that. Let's jazz it up for the twentieth century.
2: So yeah, Belle's dad is a round old inventor, mm-hmm. and he's working on a, a wood a violent wood chopping machine. <laughs> that way i think i my favorite tweet of all time is uh, daniel kibblesmith tweeted something like can we all agree that an earlier version of that invention killed bell's mom
1: i 100 <laughs> by that and it's like yeah you just wouldn't bring it up because it would make him too sad <laughs> yeah
0: what is their relationship like between bell and, and father bell
1: Father Bell Maurice Maurice I noticed this time that he was like what about Gaston? He seems nice and it's like, "Oh, Maurice, my god, are you can you do anything?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> he's, he's so sweet and oblivious. It's like when your mom is like, "How's that Amanda girl? Are you still friends with her?" And you're like, "No, mom." <laughs>
1: I hate Amanda. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just like a, a nutty professor type.
0: My dad only asked him it's seriously like that is so on the news for like my dad asking about my friends, people I hadn't talked to in 10 years yeah. forever. Like that was it. You
1: know what my dad <laughs> says about people who I've like seen or talked to like every day for 15 years? How's what's her name?
2: Yeah.
0: How's what's her name? That's great. <laughs> we don't know what happened to Belle's mom. She's just on her own with this guy.
1: This is one of those you got to go watch the live action remake after this Alex cuz you'll see what happens when a movie like tries to answer these questions and then you're like, "Oh, I didn't really need to know." I just liked saying I wondered that. Like, Danny, do you want to talk about this?
2: That's exactly. It. They answer the question and like, "All right, I kind of assumed like she died of the plague." And you're like,
1: "All right, in Paris." And you're like, "Oh." <laughs> <laughs>
2: I could have guessed that. That's sort of like the bland non-story that I had already filled in in my head.
1: Right. It's like we I didn't think that she had faked her own death and run away. To, <laughs> I don't know what women ran away. To. We can go live with a different beast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. At the end of the day, like she's going to live with some beast. Like at mm-hmm. the end of the day, based on the circumstances of the time, their options are not great. Options are not great for Belle. She can stay babysitting her dad.
1: Mm -hmm. She can be an old maid.
0: Which she's going to get cut up next.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's only a matter of time before the chopping machine starts chopping its way toward her at night.
0: What was France like for, like, 17-year-old girls at this time? I don't—I'm assuming not great.
1: Well, then, I mean, okay, here's—can I make the argument that, like, this is a movie for three-and-a-half-year-olds and and we're living in a generic olden times where there are clocks and chopping machines and— It doesn't really matter that much. Like, we're talking about some form of French royalty, arguably around the time that there was a revolution, maybe. It's like, whatever. My answer to all these questions is whatever, and I'm pretty sure Disney agrees with me.
2: (laughs) Also, they say, like, a prince. Like, he's not the prince of France. They're like, there was a prince. Right, so what is he?
1: (laughs) These questions are interesting, but, like, it's a world for dumb little kids. (laughs) like made with their needs in mind. Like there isn't a coherent timeline. People love to be like, well, how many of the things in the castle used to be people? And I think like... The answer is some of them. (laughs) The answer is the ones with faces, but like it's magic. She, I mean, I don't know, like women had sort of shifting degrees of rights at different times in history. Like Jews have been able to get divorced for a long time, so, like, could she be Jewish? We don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No Jewish father would be building that sort of shopping machine. Yeah, that's Goyish and Michigan. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the,
0: only, the reason the reason I ask is not because I'm concerned, but through the framework of our show, which is about relationships with yes. death. <laughs> right. So I'm trying to, that's where I'm trying to go.
2: I feel like if Belle hadn't married a prince, she would have to spend her life sort of as like a Jane Austen-style caretaker for her father. Yeah. Mm. Or like waiting mm. for another
1: interestingly drawn guy to appear in town. But like... She lives in a magical cartoon land that's just a town and a castle. So, I mean, another thing that I do find interesting that is a story discrepancy thing is that, like, in the beginning, she is famously noted to observe, I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. I want it more than I can tell. And then you can be like, well, then she just got married. And I guess watching at this time, I was like, well, how else is she gonna get to the great wide somewhere except by marrying a, print. a rich guy? Like, yeah, that's her ticket to the somewhere.
2: I totally agree. Whenever people are like, oh, she just gets married. I'm like, well, yeah, the movie stops. But like her life is going to be way more exciting married to a prince. Yeah.
0: I mean, this is what I was trying to get at in the Pretty in Pink episode, Sarah, Mm. is that it's like we had Andy who is wants to get out, you know, and then we have what are the options for getting out when your dad is Harry Dean (laughs) Stan?
1: You can be killed by his wood chopping machine. It's either fucking your best
0: friend who's like your brother, which is off the table, thankfully. And that's not that's not that's not your Mm -hmm. key out. That's what he really wants. Or you end up with Blaine. And you're recognized, and you have some option, right? Like, Bell's Play, and and I want to talk about how this reminds you of Pretty Woman, Mm. but this also reminds me a lot of Pretty in Pink, largely just because we talked about it yesterday.
1: We're just on a jag of these kinds of stories. Yeah, Pretty in Pink, and also The Shining, because this is about going to a remote location with a guy who has anger issues. Yeah, absolutely (laughs) 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 correct.
0: He has real bad anger issues and great teeth.
1: Yes. My favorite thing about The Beast... And I think it's possible that maybe Bell's like, I really liked the way you looked before. And he's like, oh, I guess I can just not shave for like three days and it'll all grow back in. Because like what I think is cool about him is that he looks like he might be wool bearing. <laughs> he's wool bearing? And if he generates wool, then he would never have to buy any. And you could just knit using your husband's wool.
2: It'd be very cozy. Do you think that's a kind of erotic or like she would sell it on Etsy and people would be kind of grossed out? I think that they would keep it to themselves or
1: maybe give it to like Lumiere or like people who wouldn't kink shame.
0: I love it being a kink. (laughs) (laughs) Sends it in, sends it in Ziploc bags.
1: Well, she would like, she would have to shear him. So she would have to put him in the shearing Thing.
0: Oh, man. But it would feel like, like you know when after sheep are shorn and they feel so soft? It would actually be quite nice.
2: Apparently, this is something I'm into. He became redheaded <laughs> when, when he became human, which is something I don't think people talk enough about. <laughs> no, they don't. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. weird. It's like he's enchanted and he has to
1: be a beast and also have brown hair.
0: <laughs> Sarah, how does this remind you of Pretty Woman?
1: Well, okay, so Pretty Woman, specifically what really convinced me that Pretty Woman is like a Beauty and the Beast story as well was Hector Elizondo's character because he's totally Mm. I was like oh my god it's the Regent Beverly Wilshire because a fancy hotel is like the 90s version of an enchanted castle.
0: Yeah yeah and he is who?
1: And Hector Elizondo is the hotel manager he is the one who helps Vivian, when the mean shop ladies on Rodeo Drive won't let her shop. And then it's like, it's very interesting. It's like it's like Edward is like he has all these enchanted servants because he's like just a big, rich tycoon guy and everyone becomes his servant or at least everyone in the service industry does.
2: That's so right. Also that that staying you have to stay the weekend, and I'm paying you this money, that is her captivity. Yeah. I mean that total that's the same right. deal. And then he's like, instead of giving her a library, he gives her a bunch of fancy outfits. Mm. And
0: it's Richard Gere, but like him not being the beast anymore is he's just not an asshole, yeah. which is nice. Yeah, I love that.
1: Well he climbs up her fire escape to show that he's not afraid of heights or intimacy anymore. <laughs>
0: Totally. And he becomes friends with that old man who is his secretly his dad a little bit. Oh, my God. By not seizing his company like an (laughs) a-hole. Yeah, it is the same movie. You're right. Yeah. I didn't doubt you, but it's nice to hear.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think I don't think that they were connected. I just think that they're both kind of explorations of a story that most people know or grew up hearing from somewhere and now more people will grow up with because of this movie.
2: I also think, unfortunately, like the narrative of the last hundred and... Oh, more, probably 200 years of like gender relationships and like the the way women have been subjected to certain boxes, that the fantasy of being rescued from those boxes and like a man coming in and sweeping you into a higher socioeconomic bracket is like a legitimate fantasy, based mm. on the way that things have been for women for the past 200 years. Right.
1: Oh, yeah. I guess, and also that, like, historically, like, if you have tried to provide for yourself, you get accused of being a witch. Like, you're brewing beer and, you know, making some coin, and people are like, that's a witch. She makes me uncomfortable, so she curdled my milk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, marrying for money is really, I think, historically the only safe route to it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, the fantasy is that you're in a situation... In which you're still strong and spunky and you don't want him for his money, but like then you don't have to be guilty for having like the wish fulfillment aspect of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, ideally you fall in love with someone and then they also happen to be rich and you're like, wow, well, I don't care, but let's buy lots of nice, cute outfits for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me, Dana, I in,
0: I know, Sarah, you both share being Disney kids in common. And I think that that's it's a specific kind of person. <laughs> and I don't say that in a bad way. It's like, it's I like I, of, all the, <laughs> of all the people I know who are Disney people, there's like there are shared like character traits and like personalities, mm. etc. And like what what was it about these movies when you were kids that like did it for you?
1: I was a belter and I just liked belting songs. And I think that was it for me, mainly.
2: Almost the exact same thing. I just loved singing songs and dancing to songs. Yeah. I loved Disney music. Like I, we listened to those songs all the time. Yeah. I wasn't like fascinated by any specific aspect of the story or like animation or storytelling. The thing that really compelled me was the music.
0: Yeah, it was like an ink enveloping experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of my earliest memories is of being on the swings and I think kindergarten or first grade and I was like swinging as high and as hard and as fast as I could and singing I just can't wait to be king the whole time. Just like no self-consciousness at all. Just like I am singing my song And, uh, and I had the Lion King and the Little Mermaid soundtracks on tape and yeah, I must have listened to them a lot and I just... Yeah, those words are just permanently part of my brain. Like my brain grew around the, the Disney Renaissance soundtracks.
2: There's something so earnest about loving music and like wanting to sing earnestly to music like that, like mm. no self-consciousness. Like, yeah, it is. It's a. It's like childhood happiness to like sing at the top of your lungs and not be self-conscious yet. Mm hmm
0: that's see. That's what I mean when I say that it, it is a specific kind of person because that's exactly what stands out to me with the kids that I went to school with who were like who were very clearly Disney kids is there's something that in re- retrospect I understand but at the time I found perplexing which was a level of self confidence I did not have mm. and like with with exactly like people on like swing singing songs that they love from the movies that came out at the time or whatever and I was like as a kid I was immediately like for many reasons was just like immediately self-conscious in a way where I was like I wonder how one access is whatever's going on here
1: yeah and I think and it's funny because I was a very self-conscious kid in some ways but I think Disney just to this day I feel that it is just a force more powerful than I am and like I am kidding myself if I think otherwise you know and like I think Disney World and Disneyland to probably a somewhat lesser degree and Las Vegas are like the places that adults have a really hard time with like liking because they're easy places to dislike they're hot and they're big and they're overwhelming and it's stressful financially and emotionally but also like they are places that appeal to like parts of us that are very basic and very human and if you have any connection with those narratives then like it's really cool to like see an obsessively realized mini version of a world that you've previously experienced in a movie or that like is part of a story that's part of your childhood like it just is. And I think that people got bothered by having a real emotional response to things
2: that they don't want to feel that way about. Mm. I also feel like there's something both Disney and Vegas to some degree, you have to like accept having fun without irony. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like there's cheesy isn't the right word, but there's something like. You can't really have fun and remain detached at the same time. You have to, like, Mm. buy buy in. It's unintelligent fun,
1: right? I, as an adult, have to choose, like, the Pirates of the Caribbean, for example, is, I think, an amazing ride. I think it belongs in a museum, however you would preserve a ride for history. And to enjoy it, I have to be like, look at those pirates. Look at that pirate ship. That's a scary
2: pirate battle that's happening
1: in front of me. (laughs)
2: Yeah. <laughs> whoa canon but and it's like yeah you walk around you see the childish things you are like oh a sweet snack carbs you're it's like there's gaston i want to meet him <laughs> pretzels shaped like mickey that you just like get to eat like if if you're coming into it ironically like you'll be absolutely miserable because then yeah. it's just a hot overpriced waiting in line but it's so once you buy in then you can have fun yeah
0: yeah, my, my parent, I went to Disney when I was 10, Disney World when I was 10, and it was, it blew my mind. I think one of the things that also like separated me from like getting Disney when I was a kid, outside of like probably like gender targeting was a, was a big piece, but was that like my favorite thing about movies like starting at like three and four was knowing about how everything happened behind the scenes. Like I was yeah. really into special effects, like really into like, like explaining what blue screen was to kids when I was like five years old, when it was blue screen and not green screen. Like that's oh, like how- that
1: was a moment huh that changed yeah
0: it was, well gr- green started in like the late wow. 90s i don't know why anyway i think blue shows up in more colors and so to get it whatever there's reasons
2: something with like skin tone maybe right
0: yeah i think that that's exactly it i loved the technical elements of movies to the point where like i watch everything through some metal lens mm. that's cool in its own way because it gives you stuff to be nerdy about but it makes it really hard to just disappear into Mm. what's being offered. And that's what I loved about, I remember going to Disney when I was a kid, that's what I loved about going there was just from a technical feat being like, how did they do this? Like, how is this possible? It's amazing.
1: And as an adult, it remains as mystifying. One of the things that the world's greatest YouTuber, Jenny Nicholson, points out is that Disney has mastered their sight lines like you're never in a place where you can see another place.
0: (laughs) Right? That's amazing. You're
1: just in a little world that is unto itself. And then you walk out of Bell's Village and you're in Adventureland and then you're only in Adventureland. And then you're, you know, it's like, I have such complicated feelings about Disney World because like they're running these ads currently that have Orange Bird and it's like, come to Disney World and see Orange Bird during a pandemic. What's Orange Bird? Orange... Okay, so Orange Bird is really interesting because he's, like, this cute little animated guy who they kind of phased out for a while. And I think he, like, mainly existed at Disney World Japan or something like that because he was the cartoon character who was in Anita Bryant's Florida Orange Juice ads. Whoa! (gasps) Oh wow! (laughs) And then, of course, Anita Bryant famously became a crusader against gay rights and a spreader of, like, some of the most horrifically anti-gay rhetoric that I can think of off the top of my head. And I think Orange Bird just kind of, they just put Orange Bird away for a while. And now Orange Bird is back and he's being used for evil a second time. Jesus! So, like, I don't like that, but also, like, I think, like, on a broader level, what I respect about disney not in spite of but just alongside everything else is like i cannot think of another part of the world including our government where so many resources are devoted to the desires of children and to like the ideas (laughs) Mm -hmm. of like what they would enjoy like it's wild to me Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it's like so many smart people and so much intelligence just goes into like How do we make it so a family of four has a good day here?
1: How do we make it so it feels real to a child or an older child or even an adult, frankly?
0: So where do we think all these characters end up a year (laughs) out from this movie?
1: So don't they imply that Maurice and Mrs. Potts might have a future? Maurice might be a good dad for her 25 children.
0: That looks like it.
2: Ooh. I also feel like they both are, are old parents. Mm-hmm. It's Angela Lansbury. <laughs> She's like a million years old. At
1: the time, she was only uh, half a million years old.
2: There's something very endearing about like a pair where one person is scatterbrained and one's very competent. Mm. And I feel like yes. Mrs. Potts is very competent and would take good care of Maurice. Mrs. Potts is totally
1: running that that show behind the scenes. Oh,
2: yeah. Okay, so Mrs. Potts and Maurice. Okay, what about Lumiere and Cogsworth? I think it's like, I always I see them as like a peep show relationship. <laughs> Shakespeare said a lot of things, Lumiere. <laughs> that friendship, I feel like, is going to follow the exact trajectory of peep
1: show. I think it's going to end up as like bachelor flatmates for life. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that.
0: That's really nice.
1: Alex, what do you think?
2: Does Lumiere
0: not end up with that smoke show of a French maid?
2: Definitely not. He's not a man who can be tied down. He's going to cheat on her and she's going to slap him. (laughs) I mean, they've
1: just been flirting for so long because both of them are little sticks and they can't. I mean, are they having sex? I guess they're, like, necking at one point, right?
2: Yeah, they're, like, ne- definitely necking. And I feel like it's one of one of those relationships where it's, like, they, there's been so much buildup that by the time they actually get together, it's underwhelming and can't live up to the romantic expectations.
0: Totally. And he's is he her boss, too? Like, I don't understand the power dynamics there. Again, this is for three-and-a-half-year-olds. I need to remember. <laughs>
2: That's how you can tell, because it's not like
1: they've thought this through. They're just like, eh, whatever, you know? It's like... Like, like, some creators really do want you to ask these questions. Like, old J.R.R. will be like, I can tell you. But <laughs> Disney, it's like, how do we make this into a ride?
0: <laughs> I just hope that Belle gets to read for the rest of her life. Yeah. I just hope Belle gets to just be surrounded by books forever, and she loves that time.
1: You want to hear an idea that I have? I guess this is kind of like something they did in the uh, the new the remake, but mine's better. Okay. The Beast has magic books like in mist and they take you to various places in the great wide somewhere, but you don't have to travel in a ship for forever.
2: Sarah Marshall. That is exactly what happens in the new one, but they have, it's like a magic mirror
1: or is it a book?
2: They have a magic mirror and they also have a
1: magic book. Mine is, is, to be fair, like a very slight revision, but I want multiple books, and it's a book that says a place, and then you just go to that place. Is
0: your slight revision that it's like Myst? <laughs> is, it like, is your slight revision that it's like the video game Mist from 1996?
1: It was a computer game. They used a blue screen to make it. <laughs> anyway, Dana, tell us the tale of Howard Ashman and the Disney Renaissance.
2: Yeah, well, so he wrote and directed the off-Broadway show Little Shop of Horrors with Alan Menken. And then Howard Ashton moved on to do the lyrics and direct a musical on Broadway with Marvin Hamlisch called Smile that um, was critically reviled and it was a a bomb and closed before even a cast recording. Mm. And so Howard was sort of feeling down when... Jeffrey Katzenberg was hanging out with David Geffen, and Geffen was like, hey, there's this Howard Ashman guy, and I did the Little Shop of Horrors soundtrack, and we're doing a movie. You should hit him up for that Little Mermaid project you're working on. Hmm. And he did. And then Ashman came in and kind of taught the Disney team, the animation team, how to write a musical. They had sort of moved a little bit away from musicals. They had done rescuers down under and the black cauldron Mm. a movie almost no one remembers yeah and howard sort of came in with this broadway structure and and ideas for what little mermaid could and should be like it was his pitch that the crab should be jamaican because he thought a jamaican song like a a reggae song would be fun and yeah he structured the musical and it was a huge hit and then uh, around this time howard learned that he had contracted aids and he had pitched Aladdin to the Disney people and Katzenberg was like, okay, so funny story about Aladdin. We have this beauty and the beast project that's been going and it's really not working. Like Hmm. they had been animating it and it was not a musical and it was very serious. And he's like, we need some of that Ashman magic. And Ashman was (laughs) like, I can't, I can't travel to LA. And Katzenberg was like, The mountain comes to Muhammad. And so they moved production to up to Fishkill, New York. Wow. And he did the lyrics and the writing and the directing, the vocal performances, some from his hospital bed. And uh, he passed away like six months before the film was released. And it was another wild success. Mm hmm. That's the Cliff Notes bullet points version. It's a really tragic story. And like yeah. him dying at 40, it's heartbreaking for so many reasons. But you just think of how many, how much of an impact he had culturally just within those years. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I mean, you can just imagine the amount of work that he would have been able to contribute. Um, it's just such a, it's, he's a really tragic loss for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: It didn't strike me until you just said that, that like there was that full decade where music wasn't a part of Disney movies. Yeah. Or it was a part, obviously, but it wasn't like central. It, they weren't musicals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he is responsible for bringing that back.
2: Well, they brought him in because they wanted to bring it back. But it was his definitely his sensibility that I think would also go on to inform the rest of the Disney musicals. I mean, like because Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast were such hits and obviously he had pitched and completed about half of Aladdin you know before he passed like his DNA was so embedded in that that a lot of the later lyricists are sort of imitating that sort of like conversational punchy humor that he has mm. that sort of like syncopated rhythm like hmm. his sensibility I think did become the DNA for, for the tone of Disney musicals and lyrics mm. mm.
0: right Sarah, as a person who sings her way through these Mm -hmm. movies while you're watching them, why? tell me a bit about his imprint, about Howard Ashman's imprint.
1: So I first kind of realized who Howard Ashman was, like as a person, when I was about three years ago, I was trying to be on a morning working schedule and I would drive into a workplace and I would get to work in the morning. and It was very hard for me. And so I made a mix of like, Music that just made me happy. Yeah. And so it was a lot of Newsies, and then it was a lot of Little Shop of Horrors, which was a musical that I grew up loving and watched a million times. And Quick question. Broadway Newsies or movie Newsies? Movie Newsies. I, I think it's great that there's a Broadway Newsies, but I have no interest in it. Like, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. <laughs> It's for the kids who deserve to grow up with a girl character who makes more sense, but I like what I got. So, yeah, and and partly it's the nostalgia factor that just makes me so happy when I hear those songs. And so, I was I remember I was like driving along and I was singing the opening song of Little Shop of Horrors and thinking about how like some of the verbal rhymes in it are just so clever and I just like was like who wrote those? Like who's the person who wrote like, shang-a-lang, feel the sherman drang in the air, <laughs> or like, I thrill when I drill a bicuspid, it's swell, though they tell me I'm maladjusted, like, <laughs> you know, and that was how I ended up starting to learn about who Howard Ashman actually was, and so to me, like, Beauty and the Beast changes completely or requires a whole new layer of meaning that kind of goes over everything when you realize that it was you know the the lyrics to all of these songs were written by someone who was dying of AIDS and knew it mm. and I think you know it's, it's about a lot of things and it's based on source material that is I think about doing your best to make life as good as you can for yourself within a world where you basically have to get married <laughs> on top of that I feel like you know just the whole concept of the rose and the fact that he has so little time and this concept of your life being so fragile and having so little time to try and find love or receive love being the thing that that makes it harder to receive love or find love while you actually are still alive to do it because everything feels so precarious.
2: That's well said. Mm.
1: That's just me watching the movie, like, thinking about what we know about, you know, what was happening happening as it was being made. But I do feel like the mob sawing is completely about how people with AIDS were being treated at the time and haven't stopped being treated to some extent. The Just the concept of being hunted because you are different as one of the unifying themes in this movie, like, it feels to me like a lot of the dimensionality of it, it is or could be connected to his presence you know you also wonder like you know why choose to teach Disney how to make musicals like if you can do so many things like why would you choose this and partly it's like he would have grown up with Disney too like
2: he loved Peter Pan they say some like he was in early in theater early on and mm -hmm. and yeah early Disney animation
1: yeah it's been part of many generations of childhood and I feel like You would have to go back a long way in time before an adult who was interested in storytelling or animating or imagineering or a hundred other things would not be excited at the prospect of being part of Disney. But, and I don't know if this was, you know, how much (laughs) forethought went into this, but I find it really amazing that I as someone who was a toddler at the time this movie came out, or Dana as someone who was not yet born when this movie came out, like, grew up knowing Howard Ashman's sensibility more intimately than almost anybody's because that's how deeply someone's language becomes a part of you if you've been singing these songs your whole life and having their their meaning sort of live inside you too.
2: That's beautifully said. Yeah. I feel exactly the same way.
1: Yeah. And it puts I mean it puts Gaston's
0: villainy in an interesting light who again like reads like a, I mean and I understand that Ashman didn't write the script but like he Gaston's like a Reaganite super straight mm. so <laughs> like it's kind of perfect
1: yeah and he's like you know camp level he's like a Rock Hudson character almost yeah yeah I don't know I just feel like Disney has different eras and different movies but if I have kids they're gonna have Howard Ashman in their lives absolutely Alex we know who the dad is in this movie. We do. Who is the daddy? Uh,
0: oh, wow. <laughs> I don't have an immediate answer outside of what is Angela Lansbury's name?
2: Mrs. Potts.
0: Mrs. Oh, God. How did I not? I mean, we all know. But how do I <laughs> the, uh My read on daddy changes every time. But as, as far as someone who has their shit together, enough mm-hmm. to... Ideally, maintain a stable relationship with Maurice, who's going to bring her down a little bit uh, <laughs> with his absent-mindedness. She is great, and she's she's got it all together. She seems to be a hell of a parent. I like that a whole mm-hmm. lot. Loves loves that kid. There was a point where she kisses Chip, and I felt the warmth Aww. of that kiss, even though they're porcelain. Which was I found really funny. I was like, oh, I feel it. Um, so I think Mrs. Potts. I think she's mine.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to say Gaston's daddy. <laughs>
0: oh, you're doing it.
2: I'm doing it. Tell us. I'm an adult woman. I'm doing it. He deserves it. He's
1: got to be something. Somebody's something. Yeah. Whenever my uh, my toe, like, bursts through my sock, I think of Gaston. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he eats so many eggs.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what I like to do is when I sing I'm r- roughly the size of a barge, I like to go, b-ho. Can just really stretch <laughs> it out. Yeah, that's fun.
2: Full, full <laughs> space. Non-human beast could have also been daddy for me, but Gaston beat him out for I hope obvious reasons. Yeah, it's the hairy chest. Well,
0: if your situation is non-human beast or Gaston, I absolutely understand your choice. <laughs> yeah, non-human beast looks like the eldest brother from Home Improvement. <laughs>
2: I said non-human beast, non-human beast. Oh, yes, yes. Oh,
0: I'm so sorry. I'm so fixated on how... Thank
2: God. I would never, I would never disparage. I
0: was so fixated on how weird this guy is. Come
2: on.
1: Who do you take her for? Uh, Sarah. My daddy is Lumiere because... And this is something I always bring up. Beauty and the Beast has more Bob Fosse choreography in it than the movie of Chicago because that movie ripped the Fosse choreography right out, just ripped it out. And still upset about it and beauty and the beast when lumiere is singing be our guest and it gets to course by course he goes into like full fossy, yeah <laughs> it all happens and i love that and lumiere is voiced by jerry orbach and it's amazing that that's the first time i've even mentioned that this episode
0: yeah it's wild
1: oh jeremy orbach is daddy agreed yeah and he's just i love that jerry orbach and angela lansbury were like two people with a long history on Broadway who were brought in for this kid's Disney musical. And he does like a beautiful Maurice Chevalier accent the whole time. And he's just Jerry Orbach is a very sexy presence in anything he's a part of. Like, if you don't agree with me, go watch him play Billy Flynn, uh, which he did on Broadway in the original Chicago. And you can see him performing Mm -hmm. All I Care About is Love at the Tonys. And it's So, Lumiere.
0: I love it. For people who somehow are not yet familiar with your works, how would people check out what you do?
2: Uh, Follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Dana Schwartz with three Zs. And uh, check out my podcast, Noble Blood, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Why Our Dads. For the last Why Our Dads, we will join you next week as you are good. I want to thank Dana, obviously, for being on the show. Love, love, love Dana. So glad that she was a part of it and want to thank... Carolyn Kendrick, our wonderful producer and music director, Carolyn has an EP called Tear Things Apart. You can find her at carolynkendrick.com. Thank you to uh, Fresh Lesh for providing the interstitial beats in this show. Thank you to you, our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash wiredads. We really appreciate that we get to do this, and we're so glad that you are along for this journey. It means a whole lot to us all right, everybody. Thank you so much. We will, uh, we'll talk to you soon next week as you are good. You are good. So long.